This is exactly right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Remaining on our path towards the pursuit of our dreams, despite the challenges along the way. And I think that's something that we are not teaching children to do. We've not been taught to do. And it's uh, it's a sort of a lost art that I think has played into the anxiety epidemic. Because if you want to have a fulfilling, meaningful life, you got to do things that are hard. It's just the way it is. It's just the way the world works. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Thriving with Anxiety with our guest, Dr. David Rosmarin. Dr. David is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, a program director at McLean Hospital, and founder of Center for Anxiety, which serves over 1,000 patients a year in multiple states. He's an international expert on spirituality and mental health, whose work has been featured in Scientific American, the Boston Globe, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times. Through his work as a clinical psychologist, scientist, educator, and author, Dr. David has helped thousands of patients and organizations to live happier and more productive lives. His most recent book, which we will be diving into today, is Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. Dr. David, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It is a real honor and pleasure to be here. So I want to uh, congratulate you on um, a book and a topic, which is um, very near and dear to me personally prof- and professionally. And as someone who has been steeped in the medical world, as you have, I just want to say how impressed and um, empowering it felt to read a book that understands the medical model, but doesn't pathologize the human experience of anxiety. 
Thank you. I, I really do. Uh, I appreciate those very kind comments. Um, I do know in your own work, you know, turning, uh, turning warriors into, into <laughs> warriors, W-O into W-A, um, I think, uh, you know, we probably see a lot uh, of the same when it comes to anxiety and where it comes from and what you can do with it mm-hmm. um, and where, where you can really take it and, and, and go with it. We're going to talk all about that. And I wanted to start with um, some uh, some personal questions about your road to becoming a psychologist. I'm always sure. interested in, you know, what what were some form, were there some formative experience or was it this automatic, oh gosh, this is what I'm going to be? Definitely not automatic in any way, shape or form. I thought I was going to become a lawyer and a business person. And I even took my LSATs actually. And I wow. did reasonably you well. You were close. Okay. I was very close. I was, uh, the, the law school application sat on my desk for six months and I just couldn't, complete the application, like filling my name into the, and this was not the, you know, the kind of thing that usually got in the way of me completing tasks. And at some point I, I realized like, I don't want to go to law school. And I literally just picked up that application, put it in my trash can. And I thought like, what do I want to do? And I realized that I myself was fairly anxious just about life mm-hmm. and, you know, who better than to try to study the subject of anxiety than someone with that lived experience himself. And that was definitely part of the catalyst of becoming uh, a mental health professional and doing research on the subject, et cetera. Um, and uh, yeah, that's my yeah. story. <laughs> and you had some amazing training experiences, um, postdocs, fellowships, internships, um, where you trained with some amazing leaders in the field of cognitive behavioral therapy, um, uh, anxiety, OCD, did that, let me say, I ended up initially really focusing on ADHD because that is what my mentor was focusing on. Sure. And so I, you know, there's that path. And then there's also the more personal path where then ultimately spending more time diving into anxiety because lo and behold, I knew a lot about that at, at, at many levels. Um, uh-huh. and so for you, did, did the, did the focus on anxiety come personal and, or, just opportunities? So, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, really both. Uh, you know, I, I, I think um, I wanted to study, really what I wanted to study was evidence-based treatments, to be perfectly honest. Right. And when it came to, oh, this is 20 years ago, you know, evidence-based treatments have come a long way since then, and we see them all over the place. But it really started in the realm of anxiety disorders, perhaps because the, you know, the formative leaders in those, right. in that area themselves had some anxiety and really wanted to make sure that things were, T's were crossed and I's were dotted. And I, I have some uh, mm-hmm. insights about that. But in any event, for whatever sort of historical reasons, anxiety came, became really the place to go. And, and I did study cognitive uh, behavior therapy quite extensively mm-hmm. um, in a variety of clinical settings. Um, and it, happened to dovetail with my, you know, I learned a lot personally as well as professionally what to do. Right. Right. When did, um, so for folks listening, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, we've talked about this on and off, depending on the episode, um, really is one of the, the leading empirically based treatments for anxiety and depression. And over time we've evolved with other related forms, um, ACT, DBT, and um, mindfulness. And so there is this 
subtle and yet not so subtle interweaving of the the cognitive clinical with the spiritual and mindful ways. And so where did, because knowing, having trained around the similar time as, as you, you know, there was some pretty um, recipe strong, like cookbook, empirically validated. You had to do something a certain way to yep. get this outcome. And of course, we'll talk about exposure therapy and how doing it the right way works. Where did spirituality come into your way of practicing? It didn't. I got, I was trained by the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, learning from, um, and my initial experiences in, uh, with, uh, cognitive behavior therapy, actually with, with, uh, Dr. David Barlow at Boston university in his clinic. And, uh, it's really a very much a cookie cutter approach. Here's the treatment manual. Here's right. the patient and go to work. And uh, obviously that has to be finessed. And as a student, I sort of had to learn how to finesse things and be more flexible. And I think mm -hmm. that's a process we all do, but you know, um, I learned then later with his student, Dr. Marty Anthony, who's up in up in Canada, and you know, very similar approach. Like this is sort of you know, uh, these are the methods as opposed to these are the principles. Um, things have evolved a lot in the last twenty years in the world of cognitive behavior therapy. Like to your point about dialectical behavior therapy, mindfulness, and the inclusion of spirituality. That though was something that I sort of came to almost from a different angle. Uh, that was not my training in CBT. Mm -hmm. I, I uh, sort of the, you know, the aspects of spirituality are something that personally is important to me. And it's part of my portfolio of research at Harvard Medical School. And I've sort of sort of found my own path, if you will, to, mm -hmm. to marry these um, seemingly disparate, but more com more, you know, more commonality than you would think areas mm -hmm. of uh, mm -hmm. clinical life. So you start the book by talking about there's generally just two ways we look at anxiety. Like there's like two approaches. One is we have to cure it. And the second way is um, we're screwed and we're just going to have to live with it. Right. Um, my words. You, you were more eloquent than that. Um, <laughs> what, and then your, your book and your approach is about a totally different way. Well, you know, I think our, thank you. I think our approach comes from a disease model. And there's lots of reasons for that. We live in an era of managed care, so we have to diagnose things which are akin to medical disorders. Otherwise, insurance companies won't pay for the services which are rendered. And there's a lot of background. But the, I, I actually think it's to our detriment at this point mm -hmm. that we consider anxiety a disease. And it's either a curable disease that you must do X, Y, and Z, or it is an incurable disease in which you basically live with it forever. And those are essentially the two options. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't see it as a disease at all. I think that anxiety is a natural uh, trait, a natural state, an emotion that people have when they're under threat, when they are having perceived threat, even if it's not real, that happens, it's part of life, mm -hmm. when they're feeling stressed. A and then the question becomes, what do we do when we feel anxious, a as opposed to getting rid of it or viewing it as a pathology, which in many cases... It's not. There are so many high-functioning people with um, anxiety. They're mm -hmm. comedians. I, I, right. I, are hilarious. You know, the most hilarious people, the most successful mm -hmm. people I've ever met, all, are all plagued with anxiety, and and it, that raises the question: Is this maybe a driving force towards something positive in life? And that's really where where my book comes in. Mm -hmm. The idea of accepting embracing 
and anxiety enhancing, having the opportunity to enhance one's life, one's, one's, one's understanding of self, one's understanding of others. And you even go as far as to ultimately end with to really drive the human potential. Yeah. So this is, I mean, I love this. This is a whole different way of where I will come from my, um, my love for mindfulness is that this is accepting oneself as, as both a human who has these things, but also this individual where we all have our different levels of anxiety in different situations. It just, just almost embracing it and owning it. Yeah. Owning it and making the most of it. You know, I think we, we, what typically happens today when people feeling, especially parents, you know, parents are the, the worst at this, I got to say, which is I'm so anxious about my kid being anxious. And right. when you're anxious about your kid being anxious, you're going to make them more tense. You're going to literally increase the level of adrenaline that is flowing through your kid, that is flowing through you. You're going to increase tension in the home. Mm-hmm. And simply by viewing it as a disease, by viewing it as a disorder, before anything, that those once you put those glasses on, you change the level of anxiety right away to something pathological. I, I think this actually explains the anxiety epidemic in our society today because we are so bent on getting rid of negative emotions as opposed to understanding that we're humans and this is part of the landscape of humanity. We are, you're going to feel bad. Your kids are going to struggle. This is the way things are. And, and I'm not saying you shouldn't aim for solace or happiness in some way, but we are so... we. We worship that God to our detriment. I'll put mm-hmm. it. I'll put it that strong. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. And you gone. You went as far in a recent um, piece in the um, Wall Street Journal. Oh, you saw the Wall Street Journal. Piece? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like, that's interesting. So that even screening, screening for anxiety, which of course makes like sense. Like if we're gonna, you know, we're gonna be aware of our depression epidemic, our anxiety epidemic. We know that. I mean, there's way too much loss of life by self going on in this world. Like we need to screen, right? We need to be aware. We need to see who's at risk. And you say, you know what? For anxiety, I think that can even make it worse. Well, uh, let me clarify what I said in that article. So, so the 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 op-ed that I penned was in reaction to a federally funded panel of doctors in Washington, D.C., who came up with a, I think, well-intended solution or or, a suggestion, rather, to screen all people for anxiety using a brief two-item measure at all PCP visits, every primary care physician. Mm -hmm. I don't mind surveillance of anxiety. In fact, I think it's very good, like you said, for the reasons you mentioned, um, suicide and others as well, just mental health, mental wellness. However, when a very busy and overloaded primary care physician uses a two-item measure and the cutoff, the clinical cutoff, which was being recommended by the panel, was anything more than no anxiety at all in the last two weeks. Mm. And they have, the PCP has 10 seconds to make a decision about what to do. They're going to prescribe a benzodiazepine, and they right. are going to diagnose this person right. with an anxiety disorder. Right. And the, the measure they're using has a 35% false positive rate. Wow. According to that cutoff. Wow. Which was in the report. Okay. Right. The, the, the federally funded panel of doctors acknowledged that in their report. Um, yet, um, this is still, you know, cons- when it comes to anxiety, we want to throw something at it and get rid of it. And this was a knee jerk 
policy as opposed to, which could, will actually make things worse, I believe, and already mm-hmm. has, right. as opposed to a thoughtful approach of this person right. has higher anxiety, let's see what we can do as opposed to right. Right. Are we sure this wasn't written by a um, pharmaceutical company? <laughs> it was not, unfortunately. <laughs> it was. Right. Well, actually, I yeah. was going to, we were going to, I was saving the meta, the medicine part later, but let's, we're, we're here. So let's we talk about in. it, right? Let's yeah. talk about it, which is how, let's talk about medicine and what your belief is about medicine for sure. for anxiety and the, the, the few different types that we traditionally see prescribed. Absolutely. Okay. First and foremost, I am not against the use of pharmacology for anxiety or any other disorder. I think uh, pharmacology, the use of medicines, the use of psychiatric medications definitely has a place and an important place. And I'll add that more than 50% of our patients at Center for Anxiety are on medications. And uh, that's not only not a problem, I think it's actually a good thing. People are recognizing it and they're, and they're, and they're able to manage um, somewhat better because of it. However, however, typically when people take psychiatric medication without going to therapy, without having more education about this, or if they go to their primary care physician who just writes them a script, as opposed to a specialist psychiatrist who will speak to them a little bit more, they usually expect that the anxiety will go away or that their depression will go away. And the reality is that that is not going to happen. What might happen and hopefully will happen if it's effective is that it will come down from a level of, let's say, on a zero to 10 scale, a six or a seven or an eight down to a four or five, maybe a three if you're lucky, but it's not going to be a one or a two or a zero. Mm -hmm. And when we say, when we provide medication, I should say when medications are provided in a way that gives people the expectation that my Anxiety must be nothing. My depression must be nothing. And I am ill if I have any level. That makes them overly reactive to, s- to subsequent spikes in anxiety, which are just going to happen because you're human, even if you're on meds. And then you end up throwing more medications at them. So people end up on three, four, five. I've seen patients on 20 psychiatric medications. I, I'm not exaggerating. Wow. It, it, it's, it's an incredible mm-hmm. and unfortunate process. Because if you're trying to get rid of all your negative emotions, you're you're going to lose that battle, and it's going to be it's going to be it's going right. to be a big fight. Right. But when we use meds to take things down to a four, five, six, and then help people to tolerate those lower and tolerable levels of anxiety, it's still uncomfortable. I don't like a five out of. I don't like waking up and feeling panicky at a four out of ten. It's not fun. Right but I can do that. I can't do a six or a seven or an eight. So pharmacology has a place for shifting things down, but not for getting rid of it completely. And it's a subtle point that usually does not get stated when people Mm -hmm. get a prescription. Mm -hmm. And again, what we're, I think what we're talking about, and I think those of us who think this way are taking on is the pathologizing of the human condition. And when we went from the diagnostic and statistical manual, the four to the five, there was a lot of concern by many about the huge expansion of diagnostic categories, criteria that just being human, you have all these now labels that then lead to supposed treatments and these days often too quickly to medicine. And what you point out is, especially regarding anxiety, we need to be able to learn to tolerate discomfort 
and not see it as like bad or wrong, even though it's not comfortable. It's not comfortable. It's not. I've never said that it's fun to have anxiety. This no. is not an exhilarating experience, but it, it can re- create resilience. I mean, you know, I, I've seen patients who through going through exposure therapy, you've written about, you wrote this in your book, that when people go through exposure therapy, they become more resilient to handle other, they become a warrior. They, mm-hmm. They're just more resilient to handle all sorts of life stress, not only the specific area of warrior concern or apprehension or phobia that they overcame. It, it breeds resilience when just just like you go to the gym and you're you're pumping iron and it hurts it burns it's not fun it's the, and and specifically that that ninth rep that tenth rep when it's really burning that's when your muscles are growing and tearing apart and becoming more robust the emotions are the exact same and when people push through those difficult emotions those difficult days that's what creates the resilience mm-hmm. it's not a disease it's part of growth and humanity. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's really important. The pushing through equals the resilience, just like we talk about with trauma, there is post-traumatic growth. Like in difficulty, we grow. We usually, we love to win. We love things to work out for us. We love to advance, have achievements. It feels good. But as humans, we don't generally grow from those experiences. (laughs) Okay, so let's go. Let's go a little bit back to the basics here for everyone. Um, the difference between stress and anxiety, and the two very well simple to say uh, suggestions that you have for dealing when we need, when we're too stressed. Yes, sure. So stress, um, in some ways, is a form of anxiety, although it's a little bit different. Stress is an imbalance between demands and resources. When you have higher demands, then you have resources, you will feel stressed. You know, the simple example I like to give, if you are 20 minutes away from an appointment, an important meeting that you have, and um, it's a 20 minute drive between you and the meeting, and the meeting starts in 10 minutes, you're going to have 10 minutes of stress, right? At least. Um, There's a very simple solution for stress. It's actually two simple solutions. You either increase your demand, your sorry. You either increase your resources, or you decrease your demands, or both. But that's it. And I've had patients come in with panic attacks, not being able to get up in the morning, not being able to sleep at night, really impaired. When they actually don't have an anxiety problem, they simply are overloaded, and mm-hmm. they need more, and they need more self care. And they need to rebalance and they need to recalibrate and they have to increase their resources and decrease right. their demands. And that's it. There is no other solution. And often right. those patients come in, they're like, give me medicine. Something right. has to change. I need the feelings to go away. And like those feelings are a God sent for you because they are telling you, you need to recalibrate your life. If you want to just get rid of the feelings, you're going to end up with chronic stress and probably die from something related to that down mm-hmm. the road. Like, you do not want to take that. If your body's imbalanced, that anxiety is a an indicator, if it's because of stress, that we need to reset. Right. Well, and, and the indicators, which you talk about, is um, so a panic attack can be a very strong indicator telling you something ain't right. And to your point... This is the reason why we're suggesting not going straight to medicine, although uh, agreed, I am medicine supportive when it's thoughtful as well, is you can just change, you can get more sleep, 
you can exercise more, you can engage with friends, you can reduce some of your obligations and activities, um, and you, your panic can go away. It could literally go away because it's that messenger that this is too much. Certainly. Not always. Sometimes not always. Panic, right. it comes, not always. the panic comes out of the blue and people are having sort of classic panic attacks. It's not due to stress. Then that's a different, you know, that's a different chapter in the book. Right. Um, but in cases where it's because of stress, a hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. So I love how you lean all in and you talk about anxiety as both a blessing and as a gift. So help, help out those who are listening and suffering to yeah. start to turn that perspective into seeing it possibly this way. Great. I want to say at the outset, I am not invalidating the experience of anxiety. I have definitely had significant amounts of anxiety myself. I'm not saying it's fun. I'm not saying it's pleasant. And I'm not saying that it's easy. It is not easy. But one of the ways, one of the most important ways, I think, is interpersonally with others. When we are, ourselves have, have gone through, whether it's anxiety, by the way, here, the same thing goes for depression, same thing goes for any number of mental health concerns. It can make people more aware of the emotional experiences of others. And when we really lean in, uh, like I'll use your words, lean in to our own experience of anxiety, it can be humbling it can make us more compassionate towards others. It can make us more aware. You know, a classic example I've seen in our offices is people with social anxiety and shyness. And they're the quietest people in the room usually. And they don't speak up. But when they talk, wow, are they insightful. And they know what's going on in everyone's mind because they're taking it all in and observing every hand gesture, every... <laughs> moving the eyes, their intonations, their bot they are so like, hey, are you doing okay today? Like they're much more likely to make an empathic comment, like, hey, you seem like you're down to go and comfort other people in the group. That's using a certain form of anxiety towards empathy. And we're often so like an like anxious kids, I think are usually really sweet. <laughs> they're sweet. Oh yeah. Yeah. Nice so conscientious, kids. conscientious. Conscient they want to yeah. get things done. They're yeah. like they want to make you happy. They want to make their teachers happy. They're not, they're not, they're not always, but you know, uh, you know, sometimes anxiety can develop into other things when we really avoid it, like substance use and externalizing behaviors and anger, but simply in of itself, like mm -hmm. you know, any day, uh, I think my anxious patients, anxious clients, you know, they're, they have so much to offer the world in terms of their interpersonal functioning. So the gift is I, can use these the way that I think and feel to enhance my relationships. Very um, much so. I can use it um, to, because I read the book, everyone, that's why I kind of know this stuff. <laughs> um, I can use it to understand myself better. Yeah. And I can use it for my own growth and potential. Definitely. I, like These are really important things to, to see it as an upside in the midst of the struggle. Or in addition to the struggle. In addition to the struggle. It doesn't take away from the struggle, but it gives mm -hmm. you a reframe on it. You know, I'll, mm -hmm. give, I'll give you a case example. I, I met with uh, um, I had like the CEO of a company the other day and a really super high-functioning person who, um, at least behind, you know, uh, uh, not behind closed doors, at least, you know, uh, you know had, had the outside appearances of that. 
Um, but running a really successful business and, you know, private, like private car and the planes and like, like the works, like to the nines and, you know, goes through a period of significant stress and significant anxiety. And instead of just drinking it away or medicating it away, actually says, you know what, I really have to deal with this. It's not work. None of my go-tos are working. Came in, dealt with his anxiety. And the buzz in the office is that the person became a lot nicer. <laughs> Huh. Wow. Yeah. He's been a jerk beforehand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Everyone's benefiting from the work with you. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Has ripple effects. Yeah. If okay. I think for him too, yeah. he appreciated, you know, mm -hmm. when I'm able to say I'm feeling anxious or tense, I don't have to be such a jerk to get people to do things for me. I can actually lean in, see how they're feeling, sh mm -hmm. share with them how I'm feeling a little bit. Like he doesn't, it didn't emasculate him, so to speak, to be able to say, you know, I'm feeling a little tense today. Would you mind taking care of that for me? Yes. Small changes like that, leaning, yes. you know, learning how to navigate your anxiety in a way that's more interpersonally effective as opposed to converting it to anger and then blasting people and being a, mm -hmm. a jerk boss. That yes. was what he was doing. So that's just one case that came to mind. Well, and your book, um, everyone. So when you go out and grab this, there are so many relatable case examples that, um, there's so many in there that you just say, Oh yeah, I can see that. Or I got a piece of that in me. And, it, um, so it really, it really brings it to life in a very, um, normal, normative, normative way. Avoidance. Want to uh, talk about avoidance. I remember in my early training and when I was doing an externship in narrative therapy at the time, when I was trying to, you know, reconcile all of these um, different um, modalities that were coming out that were all touting themselves as empirically based, um, that the phrase was, avoidance is worry's best friend. And the idea that wherever, right, wherever we can Whatever we avoid, it just makes worry, or we used to ca uh, call the worry monster, makes the worry monster stronger by avoidance. So tell us about the relationship you see with avoidance and anxiety. Sure. Yeah. Wherever you find anxiety, you're going to find um, uh, avoidance to, to some degree, to some degree. And usually that avoidance leads to greater anxiety because the more you um, behaviorally change your day to day as a result of your anxiety, the more the anxiety will sort of have more control over you as opposed to being able to work with it. Um, essentially, a, a avoid, avoidance can be if I'm a, afraid of flying, I don't fly. If I'm afraid of closed spaces, I don't go in an elevator. If I'm afraid of speaking to people and I'm overly shy and socially anxious, I'll, you know, either drink before a party or not go at all. And like, these are, these are, you know, thankfully, those are not my personal vices and not my personal, just to be very clear. Mm -hmm. But um, but uh, these are the kinds of ways that people avoid behaviorally. You can also mm -hmm. avoid by even not thinking about certain things, right? Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. cognitive avoidance as well. The, the main function of avoidance is to not engage with anxiety. It's, feels, it's more uncomfortable for me to sit in the plane, so then I'm not going to go there. I'll, I'll, I'll take a car or whatever it is. Um, so... The problem by doing that, though, is that we don't really benefit from the experience of anxiety. And by 
leaning away from it as opposed to leaning towards it, it usually ends up getting worse, having more power over us, and then we miss out on all, all the positive, potential positives, albeit uncomfortable uh, experiences associated with it. And this is where one of the modalities um, of that the cognitive behavioral therapy has brought us, as you write about extensively, is exposure therapy. Exposure therapy. Right? And how exposing ourselves to the feared stimulus in little bursts can change one's life. Yeah, little bursts, or sometimes even more more than little bursts. I've yeah. had uh, we've had patients who come in with specific phobias, specifically the animals, and uh, four hours later they are up close and personal with a tarantula or with a, yeah. with, a with a snake. And um, we had I remember I, I worked a couple of years. I think I wrote this in, in the book. Um, I, uh, in, in the book, I think we gave her the name Darlene if I recall correctly, uh, of a young woman terrified of spiders. Mm -hmm. And she had had a very uh, terrifying experience uh, uh, with one of her family members who was almost killed by a spider nest, mm. in fact. So made sense that she had this phobia, but it was a specific phobia. And we called in my buddy, the spider wrangler, who came <laughs> in with a box of... Uh, box of tarantulas, different sizes and different shapes and alive ones and dead ones. And he's, uh, he's an interesting guy. Um, and, uh, got really up close and personal. Yeah. Um, yeah. She was really uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> it was not a pleasant afternoon in any way at all. Um, she was heaving at one point and, and mm -hmm. but she wanted to do it. She, she, you know, obviously we don't throw the spider on the person. We don't, you know, we encourage people to do this, but it's not forced that she's not locked in a room. Of course, nothing like that, but through voluntarily saying, I am going to face this anxiety. I'm not going to avoid it. She became a lot more resilient in general. Mm -hmm. Oh, I mean, it's huge. And, um, it's hard for people to believe that someone who has that such an intense fear of spiders, so common as snakes, what, whatever that fear is that, that gets you to a point of panic. And then you change your life. You don't go camping. Sometimes you don't go outside. All of this, the avoidance sets in that with this approach in four intensive hours, or I've seen it in, you know, three, two hour sessions, like yeah, you can be, you can be holding you can have a spider running up and down your arm and giggling from one where you would be in the same room where the spider's in a box and you're about to pass out. Like it's just, it is remarkable. It's a remarkable thing. Yeah. This young woman, I didn't put this in the book, but a PS which came to the story to came to the, to the, to the fore after uh, the publishing of the book, she actually, you're not going to believe this. She went on fear factor. <laughs> she, whoa. Wow! Fear factor, and guess what they had that day? Spiders all well, over was, you. It was actually scorpions. Oh, in front of an audience of hundreds of people. Wow! All right, that's inspirational. That is inspirational. I, I think that's the point. You know mm -hmm. that that people often think my anxiety. I have to avoid it. It's something wrong with me. It'll kill me. It'll harm me something's wrong here. I shouldn't mm -hmm. have this when that is the pathway. Yes. To yes. resilience, strength, mm -hmm. post-traumatic growth, as you put it, all sorts of amazing things. Um, if we stick with it, mm -hmm. if we stick with it. You also, you reference a book that is, uh, 
a profound book for for me and in, in my life and my work, uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Sure. And um, I talk about this importance of finding meaning. Yeah. In the struggle. Yeah. You know, uh, there's pain and then there's suffering. And those two are not the same. You know, pain is something that all humans experience. We're all going to experience some um, challenges, you know, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whether it's whatever sort of, you know, issues we are each facing um, at any point in time in any given year over whatever cycles these things happen. When we judge ourselves and say, I shouldn't be experiencing this, something is wrong here, I, I, you know, when the, when the whole goal is comfort which frankly is becoming increasingly the case in our society, mm -hmm. we lose. That pain becomes suffering because you can't do anything about the experience of pain. It will occur. Um, but when we have a greater meaning, when there's something that, you know, uh, this isn't, yes, this pain sucks. I don't want this feelings, but I'm not going to let it get in the way of having an ultimate meaning that I can still usually, if not always, experience with that pain, maybe not as much, but 50%, 30%, 80%, whatever capacity it, there is, mm -hmm. and maybe even finding meaning in that pain to be able to pursue different values or different dreams or different things that are, that, that we have. Sometimes those, that, that, that pain can actually not only doesn't only not help to, doesn't only have to not lead to suffering it actually can lead to greater sense of meaning mm -hmm. greater sense of connection with others spiritually or in any event in any domain that one wants to grow mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I think it's a useful question to ask oneself what does this anxiety mean and I know for myself mm -hmm. I'm often sorting into two categories. Um, I, my main signal is, um, is anxiety as well. And it's either an anxiety signal that something's not right. Like you shouldn't take this on, or this doesn't feel right from an interpersonal situation or a business, uh, decision. Right. So there's like, it's, it's, it's a friend. And then there is the other side, which is, um, Hmm, what am I afraid of? Why, why? am I afraid to expand? Am I afraid to try something new? Am I dealing with my perfectionistic fear of failure? And it's sort of those two different paths back to your, the first part of the book about knowing thyself better is it's really helpful for growth to know which one it could be and then take different steps or actions based on whatever it might represent, whatever meaning it might have. I love how you put it. It's really simple. There are two options. Either the anxiety is sort of telling you, hold on, there's a real threat here we should ward off. Or the anxiety is like, no, this is in my head and I'm not going to let this get in the way. And I'm going to push through this mm -hmm. and grow from that experience. Yes. Um, and it's, it is one or the other. Um, and that self-discovery is a first step. I, I really like how you put that so succinctly. I'm going to use that. <laughs> Thank you. And, um, and that reminds me of an experience that you shared in the book which I had such a similar experience when you were expanding the center from Boston to New York and you were having these long, crazy commute oh, days <laughs> starting in a new place where not the same recognition, the connections and 
doing all of this for one or two clients. So I did the same thing from Northern California to Southern California. No kidding. Years ago, when our kids were our kids were young, I was waking up at four in the morning. I was home at eleven and twelve. Um, wow. And I and and you had that anxiety when that your one client canceled, and it was like, oh my god, what am I doing? I had, I mean, literally the same experience. And um, in, okay. in in your story, um that was there there was meaning there right it was this you you had to dig deep and realize like this is what i want and it's just right. really hard right now but i want to push i'm going to push through and you okay. did and it worked that's true but it was yeah, not easy right not it was easy. not easy oh my yeah. god it was yeah. the hardest thing i've ever done yeah um yeah but i decided to push through because i i didn't see I, it was uncomfortable that I, but there wasn't any fundamentally you know, terrible. Like I, I knew that at the end of the day was really much more in my mind than an actual tangible real threat. Right. And you had to go through that process to, yeah, uh, to not, figure that out. Not right. Process to go through to recognize <laughs> yes. that. Right. Right. And had I not been anxious, yes. I probably wouldn't have faced it at all. Right. And you, the other point of that, um, which you make a point of several times is in the book is reaching out, to your partner, reaching out to your mentors. So this community of support, this isn't something that you we have to do on our own, that we reach out to others when yeah. we need support. Yeah. You know, young people today, this I, I think is also a critical factor, which has led to the anxiety epidemic and students. You know, one of the greatest epidemics today is loneliness. And I always found it very strange that particularly on college campuses, you have such high levels of loneliness because college students are not alone. They live in dorms, they eat in dining halls, they go to class with hundreds of other students, and you can't walk on campus five feet without bumping into 60 different people. That's the whole nature of college campus is that you are not alone. So why are the overwhelming majority of college students in America today feeling lonely? And we're talking about the the highest level of loneliness, if you if you measure it empirically, the top quartile. And I think the answer is because people don't share what's really going on. Mm. Mm -hmm. When we share our distress, you know, some of the greatest relationships in my life today were forged because of that stress that I had back in 2011. And I opened up to the people around me and said, I'm having a really hard time. Can you be there for me? Can you mm -hmm. help me? Can you advise me? Can I cry on your shoulder? You know, will you, you know, encourage me? Will you help me? And mm -hmm. it wasn't easy for me to do that. I'd never been trained to do that, you know, myself, especially as a male, I'll add. Right. Um, but doing so created some of the best relationships that to this day I have. And had I not opened up, there's no way that those connections would have been forged to the extent that they are. Yeah, you're right. I mean, not only, I would say not only as a male, um, conditioned to uh, be a certain way, but also as a mental health professional, I, yeah, I feel like, true. right? Like, aren't we supposed to have all the answers? Like, wait, you have anxiety? Aren't you, don't you treat anxiety? And it's like, <laughs> and it's so, I do think at some point in our training and careers, there has been a movement 
or an allowance, I would say, as opposed to bef- uh, like when, when I started, it was like, you can't say anything about yourself right. to this, to, to being authentic. It's okay to be authentic as, as a helping professional now. More okay. You know, still yeah. there's that question on the application. You know, my students often ask me for my application, should I, in my personal statement, say that I've had this or that I've had a family member or this, you know? Right. And uh, I would say not all programs necessarily um, uh, smile upon such disclosures. Right. But, um, you know, w- mental health professionals are humans too. I can't get yes. over the fact that we have the same experience. Wait, you had a four hour commute. You're also, that's just hilarious. <laughs> oh, yeah. Same experience. I, I like, I had a flashback when I was reading about yours. It was like, oh my gosh. And yeah, I, it brought me right back there to the questioning, to those, the palpitations, sitting in traffic, how many clients should I, wait, wait, what am I doing? What am I, that was the thing. What am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? Yeah. This is nuts. Yeah, and it worked so, out. It worked it, out for you. It worked out. Um, it had different iterations, um, but it, it's, it still exists. It still exists. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You have, um, we're winding down here. Your, your book has nine tools and um, people have to get the book to get all the tools, but I, but I, we need to tease them. We need to give them some, we need to give them some useful information of the tools. What are a few that you would share? Oh man, that's a tough question. I know it is. I know. Um, it is. I actually have a, there is a summary of the book on my website, which only has five of the tools and it's okay. free and it's 12 okay. pages. So there we go. And we'll let everyone know. We'll let everyone know what my, that is. On my yeah. website. So that's yeah. an easy one to give. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, what I, I'll tell you the most fundamental one today, you know, that one that's coming up that I think probably relates also to, you know, parents and kids, just because I know, um, um, I'm not only speaking to parents of children, but also children of parents, you know, which we all are in some ways. Yes, we are. It, you know, when people pursue their own path, it is going to be hard. There's no such thing as really pursuing your deepest, most fundamental dream, what I call self-actualization, you mm-hmm. know, borrowing from Abraham Maslow in the book, where you have a view for the world and what things should do, a vision, I should say, for the world and a vision of yourself. And those somehow coalesce in a sort of, this is the contribution that I would like to make, and this is what the world needs. And this is how I want to go about doing it. If you even think about that path, let alone start trotting that path, you will feel anxious. You're going to get stressed. You're going to get anxious. There might be actual fear that you have to face along that way. And the question is, do we lean into that experience and do we accept it? And do we understand that failure is a good thing and it shows that we are on a path and we are moving in the right direction and sort of maintain that, you know, I'll call it faith. We maintain that Mm -hmm. um, fidelity, maintain that direction, maintain that. I'm not even going to call it composure because sometimes you lose it and that's fine. But remaining on our path towards the pursuit of our dreams, despite the challenges along the way. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something that we are not teaching children to do. We've not been taught to do. And it's it's sort of a lost art that I think has played into the anxiety epidemic. 
Because if you want to have a fulfilling, meaningful life, you got to do things that are hard. It's just mm-hmm. the way it is. It's just the way the world works. In my yes, opinion. to accept that, to accept that um, the road less traveled, right? And even if this yeah. road is not a crazy road by societal standards, but it might be a very different road that you're expected to travel in your own family, right? Or your own community. Yeah. It's going to be anxiety provoking. It is going to be hard. Um, and again, I just think this is such an important point that you're making. If we can accept that this difficulty is part of the human experience and worth it for our growth and our self-actualization and our, and our own potential, if that's part of it, we can't get, we can't get there without it. We'd be looking at all this differently. Completely. There's a great phrase I sort of take from my own faith tradition, which is that all beginnings are difficult. Now, and the inverse of that, or the sort of corollary of that is, if it's not difficult, you're not at the beginning of anything important. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. If it's an axiom, right? right. All beginnings right. are difficult, right. then if it ain't difficult, you're not at the beginning. <laughs> right. Nothing worth anything is easy. No. Right? Huh. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, Dr. David, it's time for the parent footprint moment question. Oh, yes. Here we go. You're going to share your wisdom and insight with us. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, children, and or those you love. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I wrote about it in, in the book, it's in the first chapter that, you know, in those early days of starting Center for Anxiety, um, there I was, you know, having completed a four hour commute, I get to Penn Station, I'm walking down Sixth Avenue on my way to the Flatiron District, I can vision exactly where I was right near FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology, for those of you know who, who know Manhattan. And I get a text from my only patient who's scheduled that day. <laughs> that he's canceling his session. <laughs> and I just felt panic enveloping my body and I'm feeling dizzy and I'm feeling nauseous. And, and then I started to judge myself. Oh my God, you're, you're no, you're an imposter. You came here, you know, I got the URL centerforanxiety.org, And like, <laughs> here you are, you know, having a panic attack on a, <laughs> on a morning, you know, you haven't even gotten to the office yet. And then I stopped myself in my tracks and I said, David, no, we, this is exactly the message that we have to send to the world. This is normal. You are doing something crazy. I don't even know why you're doing this, but mm-hmm. whatever reason, mm-hmm. the fact that you're feeling anxious and the fact that you're really uncomfortable right now is an indication that you are on a path. Now, will it work out? Who knows? But either way, the fact that you're anxious right now does not mean something's wrong with you. And I think ever since that day, I've really viewed anxiety as much more of a normal healthy peace. And it just shaped, certainly shaped me as a parent, you know, if my kids get anxious, when my kids get anxious as a Mm -hmm. a spouse, although my wife doesn't get anxious so much, she's like Mm. super calm. Um, that's a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly is. But you know, I think it definitely has, you know, shaped my life in, in various ways. God, the universe. Oh, how the universe works. You are walking to your new center for anxiety and you are given a very large dose of it to work through to find that meaning to to do this. And 
and like kudos to you because your centers are helping so have helped and are helping so so many people with that very thing or a different iteration of that thing that you were we were given thank you that definitely yeah. does give meaning to it and yeah. I, I i appreciate that it means a lot to me all right, David, thank you. Thank you for sharing uh, yourself, um, which, and it really is in the book. Um, what I really look for in these is like people who are really putting themselves into the work because you have found a way to bring wisdom, life experience, and all of the important um, clinical understanding and tools to help us reconcile our own anxiety how to live with it, and ultimately, how to thrive with it. Thanks so much. Really appreciate being on your show. Tell everyone where they can find your, first of all, your website, where they'll, they'll get the, yes. uh, the summary, and then, of course, everywhere your books are sold. Yes, absolutely. So my author's website is dhrossmarin, my last name, R-O-S-M-A-R-I-N.com. There is a page for the book, which is accessible from the homepage. And on that, there is a 12-page free guide, which has five of the tools. Um, it's uh, full color. My, uh, my team put it together. We're really proud of it. Uh, over 5,000 people have downloaded it actually so far and getting some really nice reviews and comments from people. So that's, that's been a lot of fun. Um, the book is available wherever books are sold. Um, if, uh, you know, I love to hear from people. So anyone who has comments on it, it definitely drop me a line in the, in the, con in the comments form of my website and an Amazon review as well, of course. Yes. Very much appreciate it. Yes. As a new author. Yes, and, uh, it helps. Definitely. Um, okay. And the centers. So I know yeah. there's multiple sites to so let everyone know because people listen from all over the place. Um, what cities, uh, they can find your centers in. Sure thing. Centerforanxiety.org. There are seven offices. We have more than 60 incredible clinical staff. My clinical team is outstanding um, and really works as a team together, very collaboratively care. Two offices in Boston, Boston, I mean, in Massachusetts, Boston, and Cambridge. And then in the New York area, there are four offices, um, Manhattan, Brooklyn, and then some in the suburbs, Long Island, and then north of the city. And then a new office in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, we are able to see some people in certain states, SIPAC states. Uh, if you don't know what that is, you can always call our office and right. let you know if we can see out of state. We do some telehealth in Florida and some other areas as well. So even if you're not in Jersey, New York, or Massachusetts, um, very happy to, to, to see if we can assist. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for this information. Thank you all for listening. You know who to share this with everyone you know who might experience anxiety, which is most of us. So uh, let's get the word out there. Let's normalize this human experience. Let's learn to live with it. Let's also get the help that we need because it is not comfortable when it is happening. And um, let's start to see this as a blessing, a gift, and a tool to help us grow to our own human potential. Thank you for your five-star reviews. Thank you for bringing your wonderful family members and friends to our community. We have such a wonderful community. You know what I'm going to ask you to do? Try to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave?
This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.